all people are born good and they're just shaped by their experiences as they grow up and their backgrounds and their environments, essentially, yeah. I, I agree with that. I think uh, the statement is very variable in that you can have definitions of what's good. So um, something that's good for one person could be detrimental for other people. Um, I, I think that people are basically good um, as long as, I mean, I think that at their very core, I think people want things to go well in the world, like want themselves to be happy and want, when possible, others to be happy. I think the sort of people that would come up as examples for when people aren't basically good, you know, you've got like your Hitlers and like other such people, I think that's like, has more to do with like mental, like insanity, you know, like people who are sociopaths. I think that when the mind is basically healthy, I think that people are basically good. I don't know how I feel about the statement that all people are born necessarily good. I do know that people are people and that most people do good things, but there's definitely people that do bad things. I think it's really a person to person and that that person's free to do good things and bad things. I believe fundamentally everyone's good. So maybe why? Um, I feel like people are corrupt by their experiences and um, I feel like mankind also kind of, um, like due to circumstances and um, whatnot, I feel like they're influenced um, by externalities that like they can't control, which affects the way they see the world. But I believe like at the core, um, everyone's good. <laughs> I think that certain, uh, people have um, like good qualities, whether or not they actually act good. Um, I think every person can like has the right or has the quality to be good. It just depends on if they do the right thing and act virtuously and all of that. Um, so I think like people have the capability to do it is whether or not the person wants to wants to do good. Um, yes, I believe that all people are born good. I think what makes them bad is society, their backgrounds, um, who they hang around, their influences. Um, the media can be a, um, a factor, um, but for the most part, I think most people are pretty much born good, but in a sense, it can kind of be both ways. I just feel like what, like, what is the definition of like being born good? Like, what is being born good? So that's Okay, so we both agree that we think basically people are good. Um, <laughs> I mean, we think that people's intentions are good. Just sometimes the outcome might not be what they planned. Yeah. I don't think all people are good. I think all people can be good if they want to be. Okay. I do think that all people are fundamentally good. I don't think that all people are fundamentally good. And okay. I think that man is living free. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true, actually. Well, the doctrine of total depravity, or what we call radical corruption, which Augustine expressed in terms of our moral inability, uh, is important for us to understand that we may understand grace and that we may understand the gospel. In my church, for example, every Sunday, we, I, I read one of the Ten Commandments and then use the Heidelberg Catechism's exposition of that particular commandment. And we study the law of God 
because the law reveals to us not only the righteousness of God and his holiness, but by contrast, it stands as a mirror. I look in the mirror of God's law, and I realize my utter helplessness in and of myself. As long as I compare myself up to other people, as the Apostle Paul said, those who judge themselves by themselves and among themselves are not wise, I begin to get a, uh, a, a kind of uh, uh, inflated view of my own righteousness. And then Calvin said, we looking our, on the earth, keep our gaze here, we begin to address ourselves as only less than God's until we turn our gaze to God himself. And in the light of the ultimate norm of perfection, the perfect holiness of God, I'm exposed. And like Isaiah, I realize I'm a man of unclean lips and I disintegrate. And I understand that my sin is not just something that's on the edges of my life. You go out into the culture and, and everybody out there says, well, nobody's perfect. So what's the big deal? They think it's so common to have sin, but there's, there are few people who really understand the gravity of it, the degree of it. And when we look at the biblical doctrine of sin and the biblical doctrine of my corruption, and I understand what it is teaching me, then I know the only way I can ever be saved is through somebody else's righteousness. As long as I entertain the idea that there's some island of righteousness inside my soul that can avail to my salvation, I don't really need the gospel. Pretty opposite, wouldn't you say? The two videos, what the college students were saying, what uh, R.C. Sproul was saying, you know, in, in our society, uh, philosophers, <laughs> scientists, psychologists are going to say that, you know, we're naturally good, corrupted by our environment, or maybe as the Enlightenment philosopher John Locke said, that we're born a blank slate. But historical Christian theology has said that we're corrupt, that, that we're sinful, that we have a sin nature which causes us to sin. And so, uh, you know, the question is today, well, which one's right, which one's true? But maybe before we uh, look at that, uh, try to answer that question from Scripture, maybe we should even think for a minute just about this question. Why does it even matter? I mean, you say, well, you know, who cares? We're good, bad, whatever. People have different opinions and, and all that. But I, I want to give you two reasons why the answer to this question is absolutely vital to our lives. Number one is it's essential to salvation. Uh, and that's really what we're going to focus on this morning. But, but I, what I want to say to you today is unless you understand what Dr. Sproul was saying, and that's what we're going to look at in Scripture, you cannot understand the grace of God. Second, it's one of the essential beliefs that determines how we look at the world and how we live our lives. And, and I, I want to give you an example of that. It, it's, it's a worldview kind of issue. So if someone believes that everyone is naturally good or morally right, I mean, when you're examining a belief, one of the things that, that we should do is kind of trace it out to its logical conclusion, see where it takes you. So if everyone is good, it becomes difficult to define right and wrong in any kind of absolute terms. 
it becomes very difficult for people to take moral responsibility because the problem has to be outside of ourselves, right? If we're good, if that's how we're born, something outside of us has corrupted us. It's the environment's fault. It's society's fault. It's other people's fault. It was my mom and dad's fault for how they raised me. And this is what our culture is inundated with. On the other hand, if we're sinful, if the problem lies within us, uh, that means we're responsible, and it also means that we need a redemption that cannot come from within us or even from this broken world that we live in. And so there, just in the answer to this one question, you have a fundamental dividing point between biblical Christianity and secular humanism. And once again, you say, it's philosophy. Why does it matter? Well, let me give you a very recent example of this, okay? It's a new story that was picked up by Fox News, but it comes from an interview that Barbara Streisand did with the Times of London on Friday. And the backstory to this part of the interview that I'm going to quote from relates to the documentary, you may or may not have heard of it, but recently there's been a documentary that's been out about Michael Jackson called Leaving Neverland. You heard of it? And it's about the two men who alleged that Michael Jackson sexually abused them while they were children. And so in this interview, Barbara Streisand said, quote, that she absolutely believes both men. But then she followed that up and said this, quote, his sexual needs were his sexual needs coming from whatever childhood he has or whatever DNA he has. You can say molested, but those children, as you heard, say they were thrilled to be there. They both married, and they both have children, so it didn't kill them. Now, isn't that a horrific statement? But it comes from a belief system. His sexual needs were his sexual needs. DNA, his childhood, it's not him. He's not evil. He's not morally responsible the problem is not in his soul. The problem is in his genetics or in what other people did. That's why this matters. How are we wired? Who are we? So which view is correct and you know, how do we know? So what I, what I want to try to do this morning is, is to show you what the Bible says, give you some reasons to believe that it's actually true, demonstrate why it matters, and then show you God's solution to our sinful condition. So if you've got a Bible, your device, it'll be on the screen. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. And today, I hope that you're going to see the grace of God in, in, in just a fresh way. But to really see the grace of God, just the brilliant light of God's grace, we have to see it against the dark backdrop of our sinful uh, condition. So I, I want us to see, first of all, God's assessment of our spiritual condition. Okay, so Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 are who God says that we are apart from Christ. This is how we're born. 
This is how we live apart from him. This is what God says, okay? He says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as uh, the others. So what's God's assessment of our spiritual condition apart from Christ? Well, let me point out four characteristics that he mentions here. First, we are the walking dead. I mean, that's who we are spiritually, right? Um, I've never watched The Walking Dead, really, other than a few minutes. Not my cup of tea as far as a TV show. But basically, it's about a zombie apocalypse. And, you know, in a sense, we're like spiritual zombies because we're walking around, apart from Christ, alive, physically vital on the outside, but dead and empty on the inside. I mean, he, he says here in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You say, well, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, the Bible uh, teaches us that the essence, the, the definition of death is separation. And so apart from Christ, we're separated from God, so the life of God is not inside of us. And, and, and just like a physically dead person can't respond to physical stimuli, a spiritually dead person can't respond to spiritual stimuli. We're not sick, we're dead, and the only way that we can uh, be made right with God, God has to do a supernatural work, he has to resurrect us, he has to impart life to us through Jesus Christ. Now, you may say, uh, well, you know, some non-Christians act better than Christians, that's true. Uh, this doesn't mean that, you know, we all sin as much as we can sin, but apart from Christ, we're all spiritual corpses just in different states of decay, so to speak. That's what God says, okay? I'm just reading the mail here. Uh, all right, second, he tells us that we are controlled by the world, the flesh, and the devil, Okay, he, he talks about walking according to the world and, and the prince of the power of the air, referring to Satan, and, and according to, uh, you know, the lust of our flesh and the desires uh, of our mind. And according to here means we're controlled. We're, we're controlled by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, let, let's look at each one of those. So what's he talking about when he says we're controlled by the world? Well, uh, look at a, a quote from Clinton Arnold. He says this. He says, here he uses world, not in the literal sense of creation, as in Ephesians 1.4, but in the theological sense of people organized in their opposition against God. So if you've ever been in church and you know, heard somebody talk about you know, the world or being worldly, this is what he's talking about. He says, this could be interpreted to refer to the various non-Christian religions, ideologies, philosophies, values, and economic systems, as well as to the more mundane, but the equally powerful influence of peer pressure, fashion, and the media. These influences provi provide a script for living day-to-day -day life apart from God and his values. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the world. And he says, 
before we surrender our lives to Christ, in some way, shape, fashion, or form, that's how we're living. Second, he also says that we're controlled by Satan. Now, this may be offensive to some of you, but you need to hear it. Okay, now, and it may be obvious in some cases. You may look at some uh, person who's really, really sinful, just, you know, living a lifestyle of, you know, debauchery or, you know, rebellion, those kinds of things. Yeah, you say, yeah, that person's under Satan's control. But what about the really good moral person? Right? We, we have trouble with this, right? Well, I want you to consider this quote from A.W. Pink. He writes this. The, and, and if you're not a Christian and if you think, and I'm a good moral person, so everything's okay, please hear this. Please read this. Please think about this. This is biblical. He writes this. The gospel of Satan does not seek to drag down the natural man, but to improve and uplift him. It advocates education and cultivation and appeals to the best that is within us. It aims to make this world such a comfortable and congenial habit that Christ's absence from it will not be felt and God will not be needed. It endeavors to occupy man so much with this world that he has no time or inclination to think of the world to come. It propagates the principles of self-sacrifice, charity, and benevolence, and teaches us to live for the good of others and to be kind to all. It appeals strongly to the carnal mind and is popular with the masses because it ignores the solemn facts, which this is what God's saying in Ephesians 2, that by nature man is a fallen creature, alienated from the life of God and dead in trespasses and sins, and that his only hope lies in being born again. Listen to me. Satan will be happy for you to be happy and successful and moral in this life and take him to hell with you for eternity. That's the implication of this. And I really hope that you'll think about that if you're relying on your morality instead of Christ for your salvation. Third, he says here we're, we're disobedient. He, he calls us the, the sons uh, of, of disobedience. And so, uh, wait, I'm sorry, I moved ahead. He also says the flesh, uh, you know, he, he says we're controlled by the flesh. And the flesh is our own uh, sinful nature, our own sinful desires where we do what we want apart from God. And so then three, we're, we're, we're disobedient. Sinner's sin, that's our nature. We, we all disobey God. Now, once again, let, let me get you to think about something. If you're not a Christian and you're relying on your morality for your salvation, you may say, well, I don't do a lot of bad stuff. I, I'm better than most people. I, I'm better than most of the Christians I know. But, but I want you to think about something for just a minute. What did Jesus say were the two greatest commands? He said to love God and to love your neighbor. If you don't love God, you're breaking the number one command. I don't care how moral you are outside of that. And you can't love God while you're rejecting the son of his love who gave his life for you. I mean, th think about it in terms of a human relationship. What if in your relationship with your spouse, that, that, that your spouse wasn't a bad person, they weren't bad to you, I mean, they didn't mistreat you, they don't, they don't abuse you, they don't yell at, at, at you, you know, they, they go to work, they make a paycheck, they come home, they do your thing, they do their thing, and I mean, I mean, there's not bad stuff there, but what if in the course of that, they don't really talk to you? 
Don't ever compliment you or encourage you or say anything nice to you. There's um, not really any affection uh, there. there. There's not really a relationship there. There's just kind of a coexistence. There's, there's nothing really bad, but there's nothing really good either. Is that really a relationship? See, if that's what your life with God, that's not really a relationship either. You may not be out doing bad, terrible things, but if there's not really a relationship there, if you don't love him, if you're not connected with him through Christ, you're still missing God. We're all disobedient. We can, we can disobey through actively doing something that's wrong, but we can, diso- we can also disobey by what we don't do as well. If we're not living for the glory of God, if we're not loving him, praising, worshiping him, serving him, God looks at our motive, all these kind of things, that's still sin. And then fourth, he, said, he calls us here children of wrath. In verse 3, he says that we are under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is his settled, righteous, just anger towards sinners. And his wrath compels him to punish sin. In other words, we're all doomed apart from Jesus Christ. I mean, look at, look at a couple of verses just outside of Ephesians uh, 2. Scott will put them on the screen. Uh, Romans 1.18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, philosophers and psychologists and scientists may say, well, we're good, we're a blank slate. That's not what God's word and thus Christian theology says. They stand in opposition to one another. Well, why should we believe what the Bible says about this? Okay, why should we believe that we're born with a sin nature that produces then sinful acts for which we are personally responsible and accountable for? Well, I I want to give you four reasons just to consider. And... uh, Something that I believe in, it's called this correspondence view of truth. That what's true is what's really real. That what's true corresponds to reality. So which one of these views corresponds to reality as we know it? So I want you to think about these four reasons. Um, First of all, small children. I mean, think about it. I wonder right now, back in our preschool classes, at this moment, how many children may be fighting over toys? I mean, do you think that's a possibility? Did you, uh, if you have children in those classes, uh, don't run back there if you're an overprotective mom. This is hopefully hypothetical, but uh, I mean, kids fight, right? Little kids, like two-year-olds, they're selfish, They can be mean, they kick, they bite, they scratch. They love the word no, right? Have you trained them to do any of this? Did you instruct them to get in a wrestling match over a stupid toy with a kid at church this morning? Did you teach them to say no to you, to talk back to you, to smart off to you? Do they do it? I mean, why do they do it? I mean, they're cute. 
right? I mean, they, they're, they can be real cuddly and sweet, but then they do junk like this. You didn't teach them to do it. Why do they do it? Because it's in them. It's their nature. I don't know how you argue with that, personally. I'm sure there's some, I mean, it just seems obvious to me. Here's the second reason. History or, or, or current day news. So, just a simple question. If everybody is so good, why are so many things so bad in the world? If you don't think that's true, here's an example. Watch this video from Dennis Prager. Evils, huge evils affecting much of the human race have been the norm. Here goes just a few examples. The Ottoman Turks targeted millions of Armenian Christians for death during World War I. The German Nazi regime murdered six million Jews, two out of every three European Jews, including more than a million children and babies. The Soviet communist regime slaughtered about five million Ukrainians and about 25 million other innocents. The Chinese communists killed about 70 million Chinese and enslaved the rest of the Chinese people. The North Korean communist regime has built what one can only call the world's largest concentration camp, most of North Korea. In post-colonial Congo, in the decade between 1998 and 2008, over five million people were murdered and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of women raped. Of course, before that, about 10 million Africans were kidnapped and made slaves in the European slave trade and another 10 to 18 million Africans were enslaved by Arab slave traders. So, is it a bunch of good people doing that? People say, well, you know, they're psychopaths, they're sociopaths, all that kind of thing. I, I, I'm saying that that is not, this isn't the exception. This is the history of the world. And, you know, it's only been within the last century that people started thinking that everybody was born good and in these kind of, I guess it goes back a little farther than that with the enlightenment. But for most of human history, we haven't thought that everybody was good. Now, let me give you another reason. You may say, this, may, this really connects to this last one, but it may sound a little off the wall, but let me explain it to you. The idea of socialism. You say, why address this? Well, address because it's becoming so, so much more common in our country. I mean, the Democratic Socialist Party uh, in the United States has grown from about 5,000 to about 50,000 while since President Trump has been in office. I mean, think about Bernie Sanders. There's socialist uh, politicians being elected to different levels of office uh, around us. Th th and this is not an abstract topic. Within uh, the last few months, I've had to explain to two people at True Life, a senior in high school and, and a man in his 30s, why socialism is wrong and why it's a problem. But, but you know what socialism is based on uh, philosophically? The idea that everybody's good. And so since everybody's good, society corrupts. So if, if we just make everybody equal and, you know, we, everybody, you know, pools everything commonly in, in a society and society takes care of them, then everything will be okay. And that sounds great except it has one fatal flaw, that everybody's not good, 
and then those who are running the society take advantage of everybody else. And, you know, those atrocities on the screen there, many of them became about because a country became a socialist country. We may call it communism, but communism is another name for socialism. Ideas have consequences. What we believe defines how we live and ends up defining how the world functions. I believe we're naturally evil instead of naturally good because it corresponds to reality as we know it. But let me give you one more reason. And this may be uh, the, the biggest reason of all when I look in the mirror. When I look in the mirror, I do not think that I am a good person. I believe in what Scripture teaches that no good thing dwells in me. You say, why would I believe that? Because I struggle with pride. Because on my best, I'm trying to serve God, trying to honor Him with my life. But on my best day, there's mixed motives in that. Um, you know, I haven't kept the first two commandments. I haven't always loved God. Don't always love uh, my neighbor. You know, I put things ahead of God, which means I'm violating the first and the third commandments because that makes me an idolater. Um, You know, I've broken the Sabbath. I've not always honored and obeyed my parents. I've never murdered anybody. But Jesus said, you know, he took it deeper. If we're thinking, you know, if we have unrighteous anger towards people, it's like we're internally breaking that commandment. I've never committed adultery, but I've committed sexual sin. I've lied. I've coveted. And you know what? My DNA didn't make me do it. My parents didn't teach me to do these things. I didn't have a bad upbringing. I didn't have a bad environment. It's in me. It's who I am apart from Jesus Christ. And even today, you know, I have the Holy Spirit, but I still have, you know, this fleshly nature, according to Galatians 5, and they're in a battle with one another. And as I submit to Christ, I win the battle, but I don't always win the battle. So I'm saved and I'm still fighting with this. But this is who I was apart from Christ. This is God's assessment of our spiritual condition. Now, you say, well, I didn't come to church to get depressed this morning. Uh, I thought church was supposed to be uplifting. Well, I think first it's supposed to be honest. It's supposed to be about the truth. This is the truth. But now, let's talk about why this matters so much, okay? Um, Because if you will accept the word of God, and you, you see, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you will see that you have no righteousness in yourself, that you have nothing to offer God, that you are broken, that you are spiritually bankrupt, that that you're offensive to a holy God, that his wrath lies upon you, then you're set up for salvation. We're going to go, I want, to, I want us to see the last 30 seconds of that R.C. Sproul video again. And the I'll degree of it. And when we look at the biblical doctrine of sin and the biblical doctrine of my corruption, and I understand what it is teaching me, then I know the only way I can ever be saved is through somebody else's righteousness. As long as I entertain the idea that there's some island of righteousness inside my soul that can avail to my salvation, I don't really need the gospel. 
Matt Chandler has written this. He said, what made me love Christ wasn't that all of a sudden I figured out how to do life. What made me love Christ is that when I was at my worst, when I was at my lowest point, when I absolutely could not clean myself up and there was nothing anybody could do with me, right at that moment Christ said, I'll take that one. That's the one I want. You know, the Bible calls the church Christ's bride. So it's like standing before Jesus, completely exposed to all of our flaws and insecurities. And worse than that, our sins are right there in front of his face. And against all reason and rationale, the song of grace becomes startingly, startingly, exhilaratingly true because the groom looks at us and declares us beautiful, spotless, righteous, justified. This is the gospel. It's important to admit, believers in Jesus, that Christians are not more moral than anyone else. The essence of the gospel and what we celebrate is not that we can, but that Christ did. You know what two of the greatest words in the Bible are? It may be the Bible, the gospel in a nutshell is the first two words of verse 4. When after everything he said about our spiritual condition, he says, but God. Do you understand, if you have life today, if you have hope today, if you're in Christ today, if you're going to heaven today, your testimony is, but God. This is who I was. This is what I've done. I was dead. I I was following the course of the world, doing my own thing, living in disobedience under the wrath of God. But God, God graciously intervened. I didn't deserve it. I couldn't do anything. I was dead. I couldn't come to him. He came to me. He resurrected me. He didn't make a bad person good. He made a dead person live. That's the gospel. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Once we see our sin, we understand grace, God's unmerited favor, God's unearned blessing, that we're dead and helpless and hopeless, and we can't do anything to come to him. But he came to us. But God, that's our story. And he came down to us, but he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God, he graciously intervened. Uh, Look at Romans 8, 3, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did. That's the gospel God did. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, why did he do this? He intervened in this way because he's rich in mercy. And he greatly loves us even in our sinful and broken condition. See, Some people, you know, when they look at what the Bible says about the wrath of God, they then say that, well, that means God doesn't love everybody. That's the exact opposite of what this text is saying. 
It's saying, yes, we're under the wrath of God. He's angry with sin. He has to punish sin because of who he is. But at the same time, he loves us. And if you're not a Christian, and even if you are a Christian, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. God just so strongly impressed this upon me this week. I think there are some people here this morning that desperately need to hear this next statement, and it's this. This means that God does not love the future new and improved version of you. He loves you right now where you are in your sinful and broken condition just as you are. He doesn't love the future glorified in heaven version of you. He loves you in the muck and mire of this world with your struggles and sins and difficulties right here, right now. The current version of you. And he loves you so much that he sent his son and that if you're in him, he claims you as his own. He's rich in mercy. You can't outrun, you can't sin God's mercy. He's rich in mercy. It's a bank account that can never be overdrawn. So whatever the sin is in your life, whatever the struggle is, whatever the difficulty is, God's mercy is available to you right now. And see, then he goes on to to tell us here in verses 5 and 6 that believers are made alive through a dynamic union with uh, Christ, which has enabled them to participate in the benefits of Christ's resurrection and exaltation. That means we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that means that, that this is how we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's raised us up. He, he's taken us from the grave and made us alive with Christ. We're in him, seated spiritually at his right hand in the heavenly places. We're blessed. We're not cursed. We're blessed in Jesus Christ. We're alive in him. We're not just alive in him. We're alive with him. We live in this union with him. He's living through us, and he's blessing us and loving us and taking care of us. And then last thing, he accomplishes this gracious transformation through the cross. I want you to think about this. I want us to think about those four ways that we talked about Uh, four aspects of our spiritual condition. We're dead through the cross. Jesus makes us alive. Look at what Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says. It says, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He makes you alive through the cross. Remember how we talked about we're controlled by the world, the flesh, and the devil? Well, through the cross, Jesus sets us free. Look at what Romans 6 uh, has to say. It says, for we, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. He sets us free through the cross. He, remember how we read that we're the sons of disobedience? Well, in Christ, through his cross, he gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 
5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Through the cross, we're given righteousness. You know, we're disobedient, but on the cross, our disobedience was applied to Jesus, and his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness was applied to us. But God, he intervened. That's how he sees us now. And, and then, uh, last thing, we talked about how we're under the wrath of God. Well, Romans 5, 9 says this, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Listen, if you're in Christ, if you're trusting him, God will never be angry with you again. There's no more condemnation to those who are in Christ. Yes, he disciplines his children, but not out of anger. He does it out of love for our good because Jesus absorbed all the righteous wrath of God when he died in our place on the cross. And when we trust him, that wrath is diverted from us to him. He's propitiated our sins. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and your sin will never keep you from God again you're his child he loves you he's full of grace and mercy towards you not once again the future perfected version of you but the version of you that really is right now but God praise his name so here's the bottom line we don't have any righteousness of our own. We were born without it. We live without it until God intervenes and he makes us alive through Jesus Christ. And so here's the thing. If you're trusting in your own righteousness, if you think you have something to offer God that you're good enough to make it to God on your own, his word to you today is to repent of your pride. Repent of your sin and believe the gospel. And, and I want you to understand something today. Once we see Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we understand the gospel is not to tack Jesus onto our life. We understand the gospel is not your best life now. We understand the gospel is not come and prosper, but the gospel is come and die. Die to sin. Die to self-will so that we can live in Christ. We understand the gospel is not pray a prayer to get out of hell. There are so many false converts who prayed a prayer because they didn't want to go to hell, but they didn't. The gospel is not deliverance from hell. That's a byproduct. The gospel is deliverance from sin. And when we come to the place where the Holy Spirit of God is convicting us and breaking us over our sin, and we don't want to be who we are, and we don't want to live that way anymore. We want to turn from that and turn to God. The Bible calls that repentance. But the only way we can turn to God is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe that he's the son of God, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, and that when we trust him as our savior and our Lord, which means we're surrendering, saying, Jesus, take my life. I trust you. Change me. Take control of me. I don't want to live in my sin anymore. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Make me new. Make me different. 
That's the but God moment in our lives. For what Jesus has done on the cross is applied to our souls, and we're changed forever. Have you ever had that but God transformation in your life? Are you trusting in, relying on the mercy and grace of God through the cross and that alone for your salvation? Have you given up on your own righteousness and relying completely on the righteousness and the finished work of Jesus Christ? If you're not, he invites you right now to let that be this moment where you repent, where you turn to him and place your faith in Jesus Christ. So if you would, let's bow our heads and close our eyes.